You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we are starting to see a glimmer of hope in a housing market that some describe as dysfunctional. Which natural disasters are acts of God and which are something else? And do you bike to work? Odds are you probably don't. Millions of dollars have already been spent in setting up the infrastructure in cities across the country. So why hasn't biking to work caught on? But we begin with child care. Pandemic-era child care subsidies have expired, impacting about 3 million children. California Congressman Ro Khanna and South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy Mace told CBS's Face the Nation that they've created a bipartisan Congressional Affordable Child Care Caucus. Congressman Khanna. 86% of Americans believe that there, we need more support for affordable child care. And Congresswoman Nancy May says rolling back government regulations might help. Some places say you have to have a four-year college degree. Well, that certainly makes it harder to find child care workers yep. and create the increases in costs because of it. And we're seeing less of a drop off a cliff than a slow, protracted slide that's bound to extend this pain. Let's talk about this now. Bloomberg Opinion Editor Sarah Green Carmichael joins us. Sarah, Always a pleasure. I want to thank you for taking the time with us. Before the pandemic, families managed to have child care. How is it different now? Before the pandemic, child care was also in trouble, right? Okay. America's child care problem is longstanding. Um, I think what changed during COVID was a couple of things. One, um, you started to see some daycare centers close. New regulations, for example, came in uh, mandating, you know, distancing between children. Um, That was really hard on some centers. At the same time, as you saw wages and other sectors start to go up, it became tougher to keep and retain childcare workers who are typically very low paid. And what you started to see was this snowballing effect where the childcare sector, um, you know, centers were closing, they were losing staff, they didn't have the staff to stay open. Um, And then, of course, every time you would have a COVID outbreak in a daycare center, the center would have to close. And so to stabilize the situation, the federal government came in and offered about $24 billion, I think that's right, the federal government came in and started offering subsidies to try to stabilize the sector. Um, Those subsidies expired on September 30th. And so I think as of October 1st, it's not like suddenly you see millions of children losing their spots. I think um, what's going to happen is over the next several months, daycare centers, some will close, some will lose staff, some will curtail their hours. Families will sort of try to figure out, okay, can we make this work? Can we pay a little bit more? Can we figure out another way to take care of our kid during, you know, maybe parts of the day that we couldn't get full-time care. Maybe we could work part-time. Like they'll start to slowly dial back and figure it out. And, but the result is that I think a year from now, we might be in a very different place. So then does Congresswoman Mace have a point that perhaps there are too many regulations? I mean, you listed a few, but those were specifically pandemic related. I'm just wondering if maybe she has a point building off of that. You know, I think that the the point that she raised in the clip we heard that, um, you know, a place that might require a four-year college degree, that, you know, for a job that's incredibly low paid, that's just not realistic. Um, I think that, on the other hand, 
you know, we've just seen in New York a terrible story about a one-year-old boy dying of fentanyl poisoning. That daycare center had just passed um, a surprise state inspection. So I think we want to be careful as we look at these regulations and not blame regulation in general. We sure. need regulation to keep our kids safe. That's like literally a parent's number one job. And it's literally the most important job of a daycare center. Keep the kids physically and emotionally safe. So we need to figure out a way to do that. Well, I, I do think um, maybe loosening some other regulations on a case-by-case -case basis where they just don't make a ton of sense. You also mentioned the low pay, which is standard, unfortunately, at daycare centers. But if you do require a four-year degree and you pay such low wages, I, I, I believe the, Senate, the uh, congressman was also talking about how they can't compete with Chick-fil-A. <laughs> they can't compete with Starbucks because those folks get paid more. So is there some happy medium that can be struck between the low pay and the strict regulations? Could we increase the pay and perhaps require an associate's degree? Something like that. I mean, and, and, and frankly, I don't really see why you need an advanced degree here at all. You know, um, you are talking about a job that requires, um, especially for, for really little babies, things like um, loving the child, feeding them, changing their diapers, playing with them, you know, um, and I, that's really important work. I don't see that it requires sitting in a classroom and having a credential. Um, but at the other hand, it does require some kind of control so that parents know that they're leaving their kids um, in good hands. I think that, um, you know, one of the challenges here is that even though the pay is very, very low for the, the people who work at daycare centers, parents are paying astronomical amounts. Um, I think the average is, you know, cost for an annual tuition for a toddler is about $14,000. Well, I was surprised to learn that because we pay thousands of dollars more than that in Massachusetts. Um, and, and, you know, Personally, I pay about $22,000 a year for my toddler, and that was by far the cheapest option that we found. Um, and so somehow the market here just seems broken to me. You have parents paying astronomical amounts of money. You have workers who somehow aren't earning enough to live. To me, that's sort of something that you know highlights why in other countries, often there is a role for the government to play in subsidizing the care, because we are talking here about something that is essential to building a competitive workforce. You cannot work unless you have somewhere safe to leave your kid during the day while you're at work. And at the same time, you know, just leaving it to the free market doesn't seem to have worked. Okay, let's talk about it then. What role could the government play? What role could employers play? Actually, I do think there's a ton here for employers to do. And in the United States, it's probably more realistic to expect some private sector help than to expect some kind of federally subsidized program like they have in France, where it's like the kids are eating brie and cheese and oh <laughs> foie gras or whatever. Uh, kidding. But no, I think in, um, in uh, the U.S., I think, you know, we often see employers coming in with um, things that the, 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 we've decided the government isn't going to provide. So um, something like 59% of employers already provide flexible spending accounts for dependent care. That's not terribly helpful because um, that's capped at $5,000. As we've just said, you know, the average cost of, of care could be three times that. So that's not great. Um, 
Only 6% of employers provide some sort of on-site or near-site daycare. Often that is subsidized. Um, it's not always, but but very often it's hard to just even give your kid a spot. You know, I know when I was looking for care, I, I put us on the wait list for my daughter when I was 14 weeks pregnant. Um, we did not get a full-time spot till she was over a year old. Wow. So if an employer could even just say like, hey, we have a daycare center. Yeah, it costs a lot of money, but it's right next to the office. Like that would actually help a ton of parents. And I know Patagonia is an example of a company that has started providing on-site childcare. They're working parents who use the care center. They show up five days a week in the office. So if you are a CEO who wants to return to office, like you could do worse than opening a daycare center near your office. Um, so I definitely think there's a role here for employers to play. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion Editor Sarah Green Carmichael about child care after the pandemic era subsidies. And during that time, though, when those subsidies were in place, there was progress, right? Uh, remote, flexible work and daycare and school openings allowing for the highest ever workforce participation by women with children. Why is it important to maintain that momentum? You know, it's an incredible rebound because in the early days of the pandemic, women with children went home more than any other group. You know, they dropped out of the workforce. But actually, since schools and daycares reopened, they've had the steepest rebound of any group. Um, it's not a it's not rocket science what it takes to get mothers back into the workforce, flexible work and affordable daycare. So why is that so important? That is so vital because families these days need two incomes. It's just math. Yeah. If you look at low-income families, they are disproportionately likely to be a single earner family. Um, and the economy needs those workers. You know, it's been very hard to hire. It's been a tight labor market for years. Employers keep waiting for it to get easier, but it's not getting easier. Um, we need people who like can work to be working. That's a really important part of the economy. So I think all around, you know, this is not rocket science. The ingredients here are simple. It does take some investment, but I think the rewards really pay off not only for families, but for the broader economy. Before we let you go, we talked a bit about the history of, of the daycare dilemma, um, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, post-pandemic. This is not a new problem. Why is it so hard? It's hard because a couple of reasons, but I think it's I think it comes down to fundamental assumptions that we have in the United States that basically a, a mother's place is at home with her kids. And if that's our underlying assumption, we're just not going to invest in setting up the care infrastructure we need to send moms to work. And in countries that have solved this problem, they've just really recognized that that those workers, that mothers who work are an important part of the economy and important part of their national competitiveness, and they've invested in it. Sarah Green Carmichael is a Bloomberg Opinion Editor. Coming up, a look at the housing market. Dysfunctional and hard to predict, but now maybe a glimmer of hope. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Home prices are once again on the rise following a brief decline, but we're also witnessing more evidence of a shift in the balance of power in the housing market. Let's get more from Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen, founder of Peachtree Creek Investments. Connor, always a pleasure. What balance of power in the housing market are we talking about? So 
in a weird way, the balance, like sellers have had the upper hand in the housing market this year, just because there have been so few homes for sale. Because when mortgage rates spiked last year, people rushed to sell their homes and then they stopped. And so new listings have been way down this year. Inventory has been at a record low. And so even though buyer affordability has been terrible, there have been so few homes for sale that sellers sort of have gotten rising prices in a lot of cases, even though buyers are like, this is crazy. Things are too expensive. How is this possible? But what we've been seeing over the past month or two is that listings are now rising um, sort of at an unseasonal time of the year. You would think by now that listings would be declining heading into the end of the year, but they're still rising. And so that to me is a sign that sellers have lost their patience and they're slowly starting to list their homes, even in a sort of more challenging environment. Now, you've mentioned the rise in inventory. That would be unusual for this time of year, right? Right. And, and so last year, this time of the year, you may recall that mortgage rates were spiking. And yet over the sort of from end of August until late September, weekly inventory of, of homes for sale only rose by about 2,000. Yet over the past four weeks, listings have risen by 25,000. And so again, I, I think that people people definitely want to hold on to their low mortgage rates, but life happens. Deaths, divorce, divorces, kids. And people have held out from not selling for a year and a half. And some of these sellers are getting a little antsy and, and are trying to sell their homes. So are housing prices then bound to soar? So they've been rising over the past nine months, really, just because of this lack of inventory. And so buyers have had to compete with each other for the very few number of homes for sale. I think this rise in inventories will actually put, I don't know about downward pressure on home prices, but sort of stop whatever rise in home prices we've had. And the thing that makes me optimistic is I think we'll get more transactions because one of the reasons we've had so few home sales this year has just been due to this lack of inventory. And so if we just get more homes on the market, we'll get more sales. You had anticipated the resale inventory would be turning in the fall. Um, and now you're seeing what can support that theory. What other flags are you watching for as you look ahead? Well, I was sort of looking for it a couple months ago just because new listings, new weekly listings were down about 20% year over year. And that just wasn't sustainable just because you can't keep dropping 20% year over year. And the real shock last year was in kind of Q3, Q4. And so I thought as we got closer to those dates that the, the year over year numbers would turn. And also just as a homeowner, I mean, even if you want to hold on to your low mortgage rate, you are paying down some principal every year, every month. And sort of that low mortgage uh, benefit starts to slowly decay. And then, um, like I said, people, life happens. And then also the, about 7 million homes have sold since mortgage rates per set 5% last spring. So you do have a growing cohort of people who aren't locked in with a low mortgage rate, and they're more likely to, to list their homes and move opportunistically. Is there sort of a lagging response then? Are people listing their homes and moving so that they can make some money off of selling their home, even though that money might not be there now? The, the listings may wind up being lower than they expect? Yeah, that's part of it. I think also a lot of reasons why you didn't have listings is because people couldn't afford to to move because a lot of people who are selling a home are also buying another home. And so if I can't afford to buy something else, I'm not going to list mine. And you kind of create this standoff in the marketplace. But I, I just think that's starting to weaken a little bit. And part of it might just be some people just have to have more space or their kid is entering kindergarten. They have to go into a certain school district. And you just can't hold out forever, at least not everybody can. And, and so I think you're seeing that sort of desire to, to stay where you are weaken on the margin. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen about what the housing market is likely shaping up to look like in the coming year. How different is it going to look, Connor? So 
it's sort of, I, I think conventional wisdom has shifted to this view of, well, we're not going to have any listings because everybody has their 3% mortgage rate. And so numerically, I don't know how much of a change it, it might be, but it's sort of, if you have 10 or 20% more listings next year than you did this year, I think sort of relative to expectations that could surprise people. And in markets where I also think this regionally is going to be more of an issue in sort of faster growing, more dynamic markets, just because that's where the volatility has been in the housing market over the past five years. So I think this is going to be more of a Phoenix, Nashville, Charlotte thing than a Philadelphia, New York thing, just because home prices went up a lot more. People moved here during the pandemic. Maybe they didn't move into their forever home, but they just wanted to get out of the Northeast. And these are people who you know, maybe life, they're having more kids, they're in family formation phases. So they're the ones more likely to be looking to, to move than someone in the, in, in the Northeast who's been in their home for 20 years. It, again, it's only been a couple months in the data. So we'll have to see a little bit longer to, to see what regional trends emerge. But my hunch is that this inventory situation is be a, a more prominent thing in faster growing parts of the country than in the Northeast. And do you also have a hunch about how long this new look is going to last for the housing market? I think actually that 2023 will turn out to be a kind of forever low for new, for resale homes, for inventory, for listings. I think this is like the mega bottom. And the question is just how long it's going to take for inventory to rise closer to levels like we had prior to the pandemic. We're kind of down 50% or so. So it could take a while. Um, but I think this is the worst it's ever going to be if you have been looking for a home to buy and you've been frustrated. And so hopefully that comes with increased affordability. We'll have to see about that. But in terms of lack of inventory, lack of transactions, I think the worst is behind us. What about those who want to sell their homes? What has sellers more motivated now? If I was looking to sell and it's sort of like, I think I was going to have to do it over the next couple of years, I would probably get on with it. Because if we're seeing this in the data in September, I wonder if there are people who, you know, this is obviously, you have to be looking at the data every week to even see this in the data. They might be thinking, okay, mortgage rates are seven and a half. I need to sell, but I'm not going to do it now. I'll wait until February, March, because you wait until the spring. And I think there could be, there could be, I don't know, but there could be a real glut of listings in the spring as people all try to get through the winter and then make it to the spring. So I might try to opportunistically sell now if I have that kind of flexibility to be a potential rush. And that rush might not materialize, but that would be the risk to me. Do you foresee more volatility in the housing market? I mean, gosh, what we're experiencing in the housing market now, would you qualify this as volatility? I'm just wondering when things are going to start to calm down. Yeah, it's uh, volatility. It's sort of, I guess it's it's sort of if you have somewhat more listings, is there would a marginal increase in listings lead to fairly significant lower prices? That that to me is the big question. Mm-hmm. Um, how motivated are these sellers? And if if prices are stable or fall a couple percent, I think people are fine with that. If all of a sudden you see a big shift in pricing, then maybe sellers say, okay, I'm not willing to accept this. I will hold off. But I think if pricing can be stable, you can get a a pretty meaningful increase in inventories and transactions as people just get comfortable with where the market is and they say, this is a life event I have to make, I have to sell, I have to buy, and let's just try to get a fair transaction and move on. And this is all things being equal. Are there any X factors that could interfere with this? I'm thinking anything from politics to the weather. Sure. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of volatility in mortgage rates. And so if maybe if mortgage rates went to eight, eight and a half, that becomes a new threshold where people say, okay, I really can't afford to do this. This is crazy. I'm going to pull back once again. Or if we get some sort of meaningful downturn in the economy where all of a sudden the labor market weakens and then that becomes a factor for people. So those would be the two things that I would consider that would make me shift my thinking. If if mortgage rates went up another 50 or 100 basis points and if the unemployment rate started spiking to four and a half percent, then that could shift things. But 
other than that, I think we will see a pickup in inventory and um, transactions in the first half of next year. And that's really good news for the economy because what we have now is just not healthy at all. Perversely, the Fed sort of backing off has led mortgage rates to rise. But hopefully we're at the end of that adjustment. Connor Sen is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and is founder of Peachtree Creek Investments. Now, coming up, what exactly is an act of God anyway? And should we reconsider that phrase when it comes to certain natural disasters? We're going to talk about that just ahead. Don't forget, we are available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Torrential rain in the Mediterranean, monster hurricanes, wildfires, extreme heat, and extreme cold. We often consider these natural disasters construed as acts of God. But are they? This summer, officials with NASA and NOAA held a press conference in Washington, D.C. to discuss how climate data showed July as the hottest month for Earth on record. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson warned, quote, Mother Nature is sending us a message. Just look around you and you'll see what's happened. Uh, we have record flooding in Vermont. We have record heat in Phoenix. And in Miami, we have major parts of the country that have been blanketed by wildfire smoke. That's NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. We want to take a closer look at this now with Lara Williams, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers climate change. It's always a pleasure, Lara. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. In your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, you literally itemize some of the largest natural disasters that we've seen in just the past few months. And then you sort of make the argument that these aren't necessarily natural disasters or acts of God. How so? So, yes. Well, there's two things at play here. So the first is, you know, these weather conditions. And we have um, rapid attribution um, studies uh, that can tell us just how uh, influential climate change has been in the intensity and the frequency of these events. And more often than not, they find that, uh, you know, humans burning fossil fuels uh, has made these extreme events more likely. So, for example, uh, the horrendous, you know, rains and dam collapses in Libya was made um, 50 times more intense and up to no, 50 times more likely, sorry, than fossil fuel, um, by fossil fuel emissions, uh, with as much as 50% more rain. So that's the first part. That's why it's not natural. The second part is that, you know, these disasters only happen when hazards collide with pre-existing vulnerabilities. Libya is war-torn, is throughout these two clashing governments, um, and experts had been warning that the dam these two dams uh, were, you know, they needed maintenance, they were going to collapse. Um, that wasn't done. Climate change happens that created these weather events, but then that existing vulnerability just led to the, you know, horrendous disaster. 
I, I saw that quote in your column, and I want to talk about that just a little bit. It's worth noting, disasters happen when hazards collide with vulnerability, as you said. So that vulnerability is frequently then something that is man-made, like the dam not being properly maintained? Yeah, exactly. So it should be, you know, um, a lack of adaptation from governments, lack of kind of, you know, maintenance and infrastructure upkeep. Um, in Germany, you know, remember the 2021 horrendous floods that happened there, that, you know, the rain was extreme, but also you've got to take into consideration land use decisions, you know, by the government there'd been a lot of, you know, natural wetlands that had then been covered over with slick concrete, which meant the water had nowhere to go. And so that's a vulnerability as well. There are those who are going to say that this is all speculation and extrapolation and that there's no real way to know if humans are the problem or not. How do you respond to that? Well, I would just point them towards, uh, you know, scientific consensus. Uh, We know that burning fossil fuels is lead into the warming of the planet. And then these, you know, really smart rapid attribution studies um, use very complex models and they can they can tell us exactly the influence that climate change, which we know is human cause, is having on these weather events. You mentioned examples in Libya, in Germany, all over the globe, really. Are there any particular segments of the globe that are more at risk uh, than others? Yeah, of course. So we know that, uh, you know, countries in what people call the global south, these kind of emerging and developing countries, they're more at risk. They are bearing the brunt of extreme weather, um, but also they're more vulnerable just because they haven't had the same levels of investment. They don't have the same levels of infrastructure that, you know, people in the global north have. Um, when you look at something like Madagascar, so they've, uh, you know, had this big famine from years of drought. Actually, it wasn't kind of driven by climate change. It was driven more by the fact that loads of people are in poverty. So they just don't have the same resilience that places and, you know, people in richer countries do. Now, in your column, you argue that act of God, that terminology really needs to be retired. Uh, why? Why can't we just keep that in there? Well, I think it takes away the kind of human agency. Um, you know, it, it kind of lets us think um, you can let governments uh, get away with not doing enough to protect their citizens. And I think that's really, really important that so, we focus a lot more on adaptation. Sort of a way of calling them out. Exactly. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams about exactly what an act of God really is. Are there any circumstances at this point where an act of God, natural disaster, would apply in that uh, lingo? Or are we past that? Have we done so much damage and are we continuing to do so much damage that act of God is not as much of a factor? That's a really good question. I would say that, you know, scientists are doing these rapid weather attribution studies. They occasionally do find that climate isn't the main the main driver of of that and so in those cases maybe active rods does apply but also uh if there is a disaster there's likely to be pre-existing vulnerabilities due to human actions on the ground so potentially not do those vulnerabilities also include uh where a country might be located or the poverty level within that country the economic uh part of that country is that part of one of the factors that you would consider 
yeah definitely definitely the economic situation is is going to play a huge role just you know if people don't have uh if people are living in poverty, they don't have, you know, houses that are as resilient to extreme weather, they might not have air conditioning if we're thinking about extreme heat, they won't have money to buy food or, you know, find water. Uh, so economic, definitely. And as we know that, you know, countries in the global south tend to be in a more economically economic, a fragile economic situation, let's say. Let's take it another step further. Some of the risks that we might see with these disasters. We all know about things like food shortages. Are there other risks that may come into play that we should be on the lookout for? For sure. So, you know, in India, they've had some cyclones and there I think we need to be kind of really cognizant of societal structures. There was evidence where, you know, caste-based discrimination prevented some people entering evacuation shelters, which meant, you know, while some members of society were kept safe and disaster was prevented happening to them, other, you know, other groups were not kept safe. And I think that's really important to think about kind of society and uh, that goes for like caste levels and gender and all kind of those kind of, you know, sections of society. I think we need to be, we need to remember that. Where do we go from here? What happens now? Well, I think, you know, we got to talk about these vulnerabilities more and, you know, stop thinking of these things as things that couldn't be prevented Mm because quite often they can be prevented. And it's, uh, you know, some of it might be hard, but some of it's quite easy. Um, We need to talk about that and try and think about you know in what ways effect like effective action could be taken um adaptation funding uh globally is still a fraction of the money that goes towards emissions reduction and i think hopefully that's changing because for a long time adaptation was kind of a dirty word uh people didn't want to be seen as taking the pressure off reducing emissions um but it is becoming a more critical issue as you know we see climate change actually affecting people in real time um so i think talking about it i i know that it's going to be a big focus at um cop 28 um so we'll see what happens out of that do you think there is going to be any traction when it comes to eliminating the phrase act of god when they talk about things like uh, the the cause of these natural disasters or maybe even eliminating the natural in the disaster yeah i mean i that would be interesting it's such a colloquial term and it's used a lot in kind of insurance so i i i wonder if insurers would be more hesitant at removing that act of God language um, from their policies. Laura Williams is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers climate change. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris, and we've seen tremendous investments in bicycle infrastructure in the past few years, urban bike sharing, e-bikes, places to secure your personal bike in parking garages and while you're at work. So why isn't biking to work catching on? Let's talk about that with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox. And Justin, I kind of can see why it might not catch on in a place like D.C., where if you live outside of the district, that's the suburbs. You're taking your life in your own hands if you try to bike into work from way out in the suburbs. Is that the problem, people being in the suburbs or having that commute in front of them? Yeah, and definitely there was this weird little period in about a decade ago when all the growth was in cities and there wasn't much new housing being built anywhere. And and so that's when 
bike commuting peaked was 2014. This is according to the annual American uh, community survey that the Census Bureau does, sort of this mini census they do every year. Um, and, and after that, things sort of got back to a little bit normal. The millennials who were riding their bikes to work started making more money and a few of them bought cars. I mean, that's that. That's one issue. I do think another issue, and I, it, I have gotten more email response from this column than anything else I've written this year. I hadn't gotten that many readers, but every single biker, bike commuter who um, who read it wrote in with their thoughts about what it was. And you know, one thing a lot of people say is just drivers have gotten more reckless over the past decade, ah. especially over the course of the pandemic. But there's definitely, you look at traffic accidents and, and other measures, and also the cars, the vehicles keep getting bigger. So that's one concern a lot of people have. But another really obvious one is just that sort of target demographic of the kind of people who would bike to work are also the kind of people who like to work from home. So because it's kind of funny, you think work from home would be most like concentrated in distant suburbs, but this is something else I wrote about recently based also on the American Community Survey. If you look for the places where there's the highest percentage of people last year who were still mostly working from home, um, it, it was in neighborhoods of Oakland, Seattle, Portland, DC, uh, and to some extent suburbs, but pretty clean, you know, like Arlington. Does sound like then from what you said that the pandemic may have had a chilling effect on commuter biking, not just because we're all working from home, but because we all evidently forgot how to drive properly. We got a little right. bit more reckless behind the wheel. Is that part of it? Yeah, although there, it is kind of funny. So I, I was basing this on the Census Bureau. We at Bloomberg now also this week have a story from a private survey, and the headline is U.S. bike trips have soared since 2019. So it, it is this sort of, it's this mix of a lot of people bought bikes over the course of pandemic, and they may be, you know, mostly for exercise, but some people are probably running errands for, for them and such. But just the mix of that with who is, in fact, going to the office. But I do think there is a difference between biking for exercise, biking for recreation, and biking to get to work. Once you use it as a form of transportation, it seems to take on a different air. Yeah, and some places it's more appropriate than others because of the weather and other things. It's a pretty spotty, even in a city that's done a lot of work like New York, it's pretty spotty. From the data that you've looked at, you think it's going to catch on at some point or is just too much, too many obstacles? I mean, I think in some cities, it makes a whole lot of sense. There's the, the, the biking capital of America is Davis, California, which is a college town outside Sacramento. And they have like close to Dutch level bike commuting there. I would imagine we're still in a long, slow rise in it. But it, it it's just that what, what's been done so far to make it practical um, it is not that much. I mean, when you, you compare it to any place where biking is much more well-established like the Netherlands. All right. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox, always a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal, and we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines just ahead. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.